Have you ever felt left out of the exciting stuff? Well, if you're the youngest in the family, you might have felt this way. Maybe you've had to go to bed earlier than everyone else in the family. They've gotten to go to certain activities you weren't allowed to, certain trips. Now, I have two older siblings, much older than I am, so that was my sad existence, right? Any of you youngest, you know what I'm talking about maybe? Yeah, that's how it was sometimes. And then one time, my older siblings went to some youth event, and they learned a game at the youth event, and they brought it back to the family, and they said, we want to teach you this game. And I was so excited that they were going to teach me a game that they learned at their thing. And I was going to be part of it. And I won't go to all the details of the game, but there was all this acting out things. I did all that. It was really fun. Um, and it ended with me sitting on a wet sponge. So all this stuff to this anticlimactic sitting on a wet sponge. Well, that's right how some of us feel when reading the end of chapter 1 of Acts. You've gotten all pumped up for the mission of Acts. Christ has ascended. The Spirit is promised. The pastor was loud last week. And you are all ready for this thing to be in action. But then you get what? Prayer in an attic. A reminder of a person abandoning your group. Organizational logistics of selecting a replacement. Hey, come on. We're between the ascension of Christ and his promise of the Holy Spirit coming with fire. And we get this. What the heck? This is a wet sponge. Maybe. Maybe there's more in this passage than we realize. Before we just skip to the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, there is stuff in place in the end of chapter 1 that is needed for us to realize the amazing mission that God has to do in his early church that these things are in place. So, before we see this passage as anticlimactic. We need to see the way that God uses this to make his, his mission go forward into the world. So let's look together, shall we? I'm going to take this into three sections. What's printed in the worship guide is verses 12 through 16, but I'm going to go all the way 12 through 26. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to look there too. I'm just going to read 12 through 24 and then do the reading. And then we will keep going forward in the passage as the narrative unfolds. So let's go. God's word, Acts 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. God, we thank you for your word. 
awesome. Or if you're just joining us, welcome. We're going through the book of Acts, and we'll be going through it until mid-April. And here we have Luke, a physician, in his second volume. In his second volume, Luke being his first volume, he is going to go through the early church and its growth and how the gospel goes throughout Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth, the Roman Empire. It covers 32 years of this amazing adventure of the Holy Spirit going throughout the world. And as we talked last week, there are three things as we read Acts, and I encourage you to be reading Acts as we go through Acts, three things to think about in reading and understanding this genre. First, it's historical reality. This is an historical narrative with places and times and people, things in history. We see eyewitnesses to the growth of the church, eyewitnesses to what Jesus did, his death and resurrection, and then communicating it through speeches and different ways throughout the world. And if you're someone that's thinking about Christianity, processing Christianity, this book makes you think, what am I to do with this evidence and the reality of what the church is talking about and what Jesus did. So one, it's an historical reality. What do we do with that reality? Number two, the existential reality of this book. That this is a book that is in real time working how we live out the Christian message in life. Again, we studied the book of Amos, which might have felt a little bit more ethereal, poetic, removed from us. And some of us might have been wondering, well, what does this mean, Dan, for us in the church today? Well, Acts is going to talk about what it looks like in real time. How does the church act in a world that might seem contrary to the gospel and is contrary to the gospel at times? So how do we deal with that, the existential reality? And third and lastly, the spiritual reality of this book. You know, that might seem very weird that I even say spirituality. We should know spirituality when we read the Bible. But I think we live in an age where we remove transcendence. That the idea that there is a God outside of ourselves that is working and moving in our world. And what we see in this book is that God moves and works through the Holy Spirit. And he works in a way through that power that we see radical change throughout the world. And we're going to look at the first seven chapters, a radical change in the city, in Jerusalem. And later in Acts, it says, it's how the Spirit changes and the church changes the world and turns it upside down. And we're seeing the spirituality of how the Spirit changes the world upside down. Historical reality, existential reality, spiritual reality. So, where are we, we've been left? Well... The apostles, the 11 of them, disciples have seen and others have seen the ascension of Christ. And he has promised the Holy Spirit. And he's promised that the Spirit would come in a few days. And they would bring a mission to the ends of the earth. So these disciples, these um, people are followers of Jesus, have returned back to Jerusalem. A Sabbath day journey. Doesn't mean a full day. A Sabbath day you could only travel so far. Actually, about 2,000 yards is what the law said within the confines of a city. So they probably traveled, which is about the Mount of Olivet to Jerusalem, about 2,000 yards. And they are meeting in an upper room. 
about 120 of them. So it's probably a larger house, someone that's more wealthy, meeting up in this attic or second floor. And here they are, the 11 apostles, other disciples, including the women, 120 of them. And the mission's been given to them. What's supposed to happen? You're all ready for it to all break out. What do they do? I mean, here's what's going to be mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts. It's mentioned 20 out of 28 chapters in the book of Acts. What is it? Well, it doesn't seem very exciting to us at times, but it's prayer. Prayer is what they did. This wasn't any kind of prayer. It was united prayer. They were in one accord together. And the verb construction here is this prayer is ongoing prayer. You might wonder, this sounds very anticlimactic. I'm ready for the Holy Spirit. I'm ready for Pentecost. I'm ready for tongues of fire. I'm ready for speaking in different language. I'm ready for thousands of people to come to know Christ, right? That's what I know of Acts. And here we just get prayer. You know what's interesting is that it seems to be of any generation, we think the state of our culture or the state of where we are is the worst. It's never been worse than where we are right now. You know, my parents said it was bad then. Oh, what's going on now is worse than it's ever been. And we might think America is in the worst state it's ever been. I got to study under one of the foremost Revolutionary War historians at George Washington University. And one thing he was really good in talking about was the state of America, specifically after the Revolutionary War. We had a population of about 5 million people, and one of his major researches was on how many, what people were doing at that time. And one thing he observed is about 6% to 10% of the population in America at that time, about 300,000 to 500,000 people, were living in a constant state of drunkenness. It was horrible how bad it was, how many people were just drunk all the time in America. A lot of times it was because of what things you could drink and couldn't and because of um, the safety of um, drinking things, but still, it was bad. On top of that, the drunkenness was so bad and the corruption in America was so bad that it was the first time in the American experiment that there was a collective fear of women going out at night for fear of assault. That's how bad it had been. There were bank robberies on a daily occurrence happening in the United States. Chief Justice Marshall, the Chief Justice of the United States, was writing to the bishop in Virginia and said this, I think the church is so far gone, it will not be redeemed. And in 30 years, religion will be forgotten altogether in America. We complain about colleges right now, right? The left and secularism and all these things. Well, there was a poll taken at Harvard University in the early 1800s to see how many were Christians at Harvard. Not one student at Harvard College admitted that they were a believer in Jesus Christ. At Princeton, which is a much more evangelical school, Christian school, only two people admitted they're followers of Christ. At Dartmouth, at that time, they were putting on anti-Christian plays. At Princeton, some of the student body went out to a local Presbyterian church and burned a Bible. 
I wonder what we would think now if those things were happening. Well, pastors in the area, New England specifically, saw this is a dire strait of what's happening in the United States. Isaac Backus called for prayer and called for many of his fellow pastors to pray. And he called for prayer the first Monday of the month. And that prayer that Isaac Backus started, started to spread throughout the United States. And that prayer caused what many historians say the catalyst for the Second Great Awakening. Just one aspect of what that prayer meeting did, one Sunday morning, 11,000 people in Kentucky came to a communion service. And that was just unheard of. That that kind of outpouring of the Spirit happened in the United States to bring upon the Second Great Awakening. You can read about it and what that did in American history. I'm not going to go into all, in it, all to it right now. But it was an amazing outflow of the Spirit. Historian Edwin Orr, who writes about these things and this kind of evidence, says this. In all his work on history and spiritual awakenings, he has found this. There is not a spiritual awakening that has begun apart from united prayer. I go through tons of other stories. There's one about, uh, there's islands off the coast of Scotland, the west coast of Scotland, that two older ladies in their 80s, one was blind, one was crippled. These sisters started praying together, and others started praying with them. And then in the 1940s, a revival broke out in western Scotland, where religion was really dead at that time, and many, many came to faith. Whether it's the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the Keswick revival, whatever it might be, you see prayer as integral to the spirit being outpoured in revival. And here we see this. The prayer in the upper room was crucial for the work of the Spirit to happen in this city of Jerusalem. See, God used united prayer for the works of the Spirit in an intense manifestation. Now here's the thing. When we many times think about this in our kind of society that likes to put plug and chug equations in. What do I have to do to get this, to get X equals Y, all those kind of stuff. We think, what then should we do? How can we manufacture revival? And that's happened through American history, a manufacturing that we've tried to do in revival through emotionalism, through uh, certain things to prick people, to get them going, that we tried to just manufacture these kind of movements. Here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moves where He wants to move. He doesn't do it always in ways that we expect. But the Spirit is moved through united prayer. One thing that we have to realize, if we decide as a church, said we're going to unite ourselves to prayer, to, for God to work in a revival, it might not happen the way that we want it might be a church down the road is the one that revival happens there and the Spirit is upward. Are we okay with that? 
it might happen that revival causes disruption in our culture and suffering and pain. And you see that in Acts. With revival comes major disruption among these followers of Christ. And it's hard and it's difficult. Are we prepared for that? For some of us, we don't see the population where revival happens. A lot of us, myself included, don't realize, do you know there's revival happening in the United States right now? Many people that work in seminaries and sociologists, they've been talking about, do you know where revival is happening in the United States? It's among the immigrant population right now in the United States. Immigrants from Portugal, from Congo, from Cuba, from different places coming to the United States, those are some of the fastest growing churches and the fastest amount of conversions are happening among those populations. In the PCA in general, in New England, we have lots of churches that are growing. In fact, like Portuguese churches in Boston and people coming to faith through these immigrant populations. There is revival happening. But it's not always what we want or what we think. You see, the Spirit moves where He wants to move. I do wonder, are we a church that is dedicated to prayer? I made a commitment when we started this church plant. One of the first things we talked about, maybe some of you remember, some of this, we talked about prayer over and over again. This is only going to happen through prayer. And I told Aaron and others, I said, if we're going to do one thing weekly, and we didn't even meet for worship early on, we are going to just pray. I'm thankful that we've continued that, praying on a weekly basis. And I would encourage you, I think we want to have a church that is in one accord, united for prayer, for the change in our city. I don't know how to get you all there to pray. I don't know if it's providing food every week or a Zoom meeting. We've tried that. I don't know what it takes. I, I'm not trying to guilt. I mean, I'd love for you to be there in prayer. We pray, again, like we said, Wednesday at noon on Zoom and here between the services. I encourage you to come and pray with us. And if you have ideas of how to get more of us involved to pray, Kim Borden, myself, others, we are more than welcome to hear advice to be able to do that. But I think if we really want to see change, it's going to take united effort, ongoing prayer for change to be in our city. It might seem boring. It might not seem very exciting. But that is where we see the real work of God happening. Well, if waiting seems anticlimactic, if prayer seems anticlimactic, well, talking about a scandal in the church definitely seems anticlimactic. So let's look at that, shall we? Let's look at verses 15 through 20 and what we're talking about when we talk about scandal. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. 
for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." Well, talk about discouraging. Here is one of their own who shared all things with them, chosen by Jesus, who has now abandoned the message. And talk about scandalous. This was known among all of Jerusalem, what it said, this field of blood. You know, if you're again wondering, is this true? Is the Bible really true? Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust what Jesus is saying one argument that people do make is that this was just made up by a bunch of guys. These disciples were discouraged that their leader died, and so they made up the resurrection, and they were really good at propagating it, so they just made it up, and it went forward. Now, if I was making something up and trying to make it like people would follow, I would probably leave this out, okay? Okay? I would probably leave out that one of the guys that was with us for all this time that saw all that Jesus did was an apostate. Denied what Jesus was saying and walked off. But they don't. Could this be in there because all this stuff actually happened? And it says everyone knows it too. They know of the story of what happened to Judas. Something to think about. And maybe process, okay, what does this have for me then, this story? Let's move on here. This is the first speech of the apostles. And like we've said, one-third of the whole book of Acts is speeches. There's 20 plus of them, and they are thrilling. There's speeches with powerful rhetoric. There's calls to repentance. There's amazing philosophical logic. There's evidence of the resurrection. There's mob attacks. They're short. They're long. They are powerful. They come from all these different characters. They're amazing. And here we're ready for the first speech. And here it is. Peter, brothers, the scripture had to be filled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Really? This is the first speech? I mean, I want to hear spirit power. I want to hear all that kind of stuff. But when it talks about the spirit it talks about the Word of God. Many of us forget in divorce that the Holy Spirit is working through the Word. When sometimes we think about Holy Spirit, we think about whims and urges and fantastic ideas. But no, the Spirit and Acts starts with obedience to God's Word. 
Many of us might wonder, I want the Holy Spirit to talk to me. I want the Holy Spirit to tell me what to do. I want it to be clear. I want to know what I'm supposed to do. Guess what? The Holy Spirit has talked to you directly. He's been clear. He's given you things to do. Clearly. His word. It's been given to us. It might seem boring at times, but it's critical for the word to be foremost that we can move forward even in adversity that's seen in this passage. So again, Peter, what he does here, he quotes the book of Psalms in two different places about God calling us to take someone that's deserted, the first part, and then to appoint a new person, the second part. And again, there were 12 tribes in Israel. And again, this message is for Israel, also for all the world. And so this message is showing through the 12 apostles, again, how this word is coming through the Jewish people. Why there needs to be the 12. Jesus also talks about how the 12 will be important in the eschaton, in God's final judgment. And how they need to have those 12. And Revelation talks about the same, how the apostles will be crucial at the end times in the eschaton. So why there needs to be a 12th apostle. So many of us who are very maybe familiar with the story and familiar with Judas, sometimes we forget how scandalous it was for someone of the 12 to betray, someone chosen by Jesus to betray Jesus and the 12. Here's in the inner ring. Again, all's been allotted to him, and he still goes his own way. In church language, we usually use the word apostasy. It's amazing that word, I hear it more and more often in the 21st century, it's become a very big topic, apostasy. As we've seen, big Christian names evangelicals saying they are walking away from the faith and becoming apostates. This is very sad. It's sad to see that happening in the church, but at the same time, that should not be surprising to us. It should not rock us to the core. If someone that followed Jesus for three years and saw all he did, saw all his miracles, saw what happened, abandoned Jesus, then it should not surprise us that even in our age, some will walk away from Christ. And even if it seems out of control, this is what Peter is communicating. That God's word, his spirit, is still moving forward even in these kind of situations. He is not surprised the gospel is not halted. The Holy Spirit is at work even if these kind of situations happen. I'm sure some of you watched the inauguration this last week. And the person that kind of stole the show was a 22-year-old poet, Amanda Gorman. She's probably getting the most press about the inauguration. And she lifted the nation up through a five-minute-plus poem, which I never knew someone could get that much time in inauguration for a poem, but she did. Amazing. 
But it was a great poem. It was powerful. And there is one part in the poem that probably will stand out more than others, I think, through history, and something that many people commented on. And the line was this. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. Now, when that line was given, they cut to different cameras, and you saw the heads of state, powerful people in the United States, giving head nods. There are probably people in the crowd and people watching on TV saying amen, and others saying, wow, this is true. And it made sense that people felt to that and spoke to that. They felt like the republic is in danger. But despite all our feelings, despite all that we see, democracy can't be defeated. Now, I'll argue whether democracy can be defeated or not. That's not really the point. But the point is this. If we have these feelings in saying amens to lines like that, how much more true is it for us as followers of Christ to know this? Even when sin seems like it could defeat us, even when depression feels like it can overtake us, even when life situations are not going well, even when we feel like we are being defeated in the church, the Spirit has a mission that He's laid out in His Word. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing shall separate us from God and His mission and His plan for His people. If we can say amen to a 22-year-old girl who speaks on the Capitol steps, how much more as we as the church can say amen when we are discouraged with what's going around us? Because we follow a king that will never lose his term. See, the Christian spirit is more than getting goosebumps when your favorite Chris Tomlin song comes on the radio. This is a power that will not be halted. No matter our opinions on masks, no matter if this disease claims hundreds of thousands of people, no matter if our friends walk away from the faith, the Spirit moves on in mission to the glory of God. Well, it does not end. we got to get to the actual choosing. Verses 21 through 26. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he has taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Must be um, become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." This is really one big key in interpreting Acts, okay? 
to know the difference between what is normative, which means what we can apply today, what we're reading in Acts, and what is descriptive, what they're describing what's happening in history. And those not, are not always the same. This is not an epistle, a letter, or the law that's just giving us deductive principles. Instead, again, this is historical na narrative. When I took a class in high school called the Bible as Literature, and I was around my friends that opened the Bible for the first time in the book of Genesis, which is also historical narrative, this is what they said when they heard about Lot giving his daughters um, to be done bad things to them and saw Abraham give Sarah away. They read this and says, this is what Christianity is about? I want nothing of this. I want no part of this. Here's the thing. They were reading descriptively the historical narrative. That is not what we are supposed to do. Okay? There's a difference between what is being described and what we are supposed to do as the church. Okay? And what becomes confusing a little bit in Acts, and where a lot of, in church history there's been confusion, is that some people have taken what is described and become normative in Acts versus is what is actually not supposed to be done. And part of the hard part in Acts is us being able to know what applies to us today and what does not. And that's why we need to look at the context and also look at other principles in the New Testament to know what we are supposed to apply and what we are not supposed to apply. Does that make sense? That's an interpretive principle as we look in the book of Acts. So this is how we're then supposed to interpret Acts today, right? So Pete and I and the elders, we had a bunch of different buildings we were looking at. We put them all in a bag, and we shook it up, and we pulled out a name, and guess what got chosen? This building. Because we read the book of Acts and says that's what we're supposed to do. Sarcasm again. I guess sarcasm is my thing lately, I guess. Same thing. We decided, we took a bunch of names. We pulled out a name, and guess what came? David Emke. Now he's our assistant pastor. Congratulations. Yes. You got chosen from a bag, right? No! Yeah, amen. That's right. Good. No. We first need to see this. Before they just drew names out of a hat, they first saw who is the people that f were following us, the disciples. Then on top of that, who was there for the beginning of the teaching of Jesus all the way to his resurrection. They were part of that. And that whittled it down. And they probably whittled it down even further to who might have been qualified. And there's these two names. So, one good principle to see is the gospel is not directed simply by how we feel and how it moves forward in mission. It's not just how we feel. We're not choosing the most charismatic leader, the one that has the best ability for church growth, the one that speaks well. No, it's tied to the work of Jesus. And this is a constant warning in the New Testament. You see this in 1 John. 1 John says, there will be false teachers among you. How do you know what they're saying is true? How do you know what they're saying is actually of the Spirit? 1 John tells us, you know it's of the Spirit if it's tied to the work of Christ. And this is important. 
This work of the gospel moving forward, the work of the Spirit, is tied to the work of Christ. They are not divorced. Too often in the church, we have let outward signs direct us versus seeing the Spirit is not something off to the side or on its own mission. Instead, the Spirit is united with the work of Christ, which would make sense. But too often we look at the outside instead of the heart. And again, you see here, before they make the selection, they pray. God, you see the heart. You know what people are really dealing with in the inside. It's, I also find it very interesting that Joseph is given more descriptors of who he is. Matthias is given less, but still Matthias is chosen by lot. Maybe it's an answer to prayer that God knows the heart. But at the same time, they, they draw lots. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, in the Old Testament, that's what was done. There was a drawing of lots. And it probably looked a little bit here, maybe putting a name on a rock or some kind of object, pulling out of the bag, and that's the name that was chosen. Again, something that was done in the Old Testament. But after this passage, that form of decision-making is never done again in the New Testament. Why? I think this passage sets us up for something. It's setting us up for what is to come. The Holy Spirit. Why is lots never done again? Because now the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Dwells in the church. That the Spirit can give us wisdom and discernment to make decisions. To go forward with decision making because God dwells in us. But hear me. And what I think I love about this passage and why it comes before Pentecost. That it gives us what the Spirit looks like. It's not something subjective. It's not something that simply feels good. It's not self-expressionism. It's directed by prayer, by Scripture, by the life of Christ. Now hear me. That doesn't mean we should take the Spirit's power for granted. We shouldn't. And when it comes, we will see the great power the Holy Spirit has. I love this passage because what might seem ordinary, what might seem anticlimactic, prepares us for the coming of the Spirit that uses the ordinary for extraordinary things for the work of Christ. The Spirit, as we will see, brings the power to convict people in the deepest sins. To change people into new creations. To unify people with Christ. To glorify God. To grow us in our holiness. And to give us spiritual gifts for the mission of the gospel. This is not anticlimactic. Prayer, the word, the life of Christ prepares us for the spirit. 
And then he utilizes this means for a powerful work where we are united with Christ, with wisdom and spiritual gifts to transform our city, to transform our state, to transform our nation, and transform our world, to turn it all upside down for the gospel.